Hello and welcome to Let's Talk Organ and Tissue Donation in partnership with Donate Life. I'm your host, Michael Billings, and my guest today is James Shepard. James is an amazingly strong bloke who received a heart transplant in his early 30s. It's a hell of a story that I'll let him tell. But before we get to him, I just want to remind you that I do this podcast in the hope that after listening, you'll do two things. Sign up to become an organ donor at donatelife.gov.au and talk to your family about your desire to be an organ donor. Both those things are as important as each other, and just one organ or tissue donor can transform the lives of many people. I'll remind you at the end of the episode, but for now, here's James Shepard. James, thanks for joining me today. No worries. Thanks for having me. Where does the story start for you? I guess the story starts for me way back, probably about five to seven years ago. I was a bloke in his mid to late 20s who was just living a pretty normal life, to be honest, Um, working full time, going to the pub with mates and yeah, everything was pretty normal and I just started uh, experiencing an irregular heartbeat. Sort of would just crop up every now and again and would feel like, you know, there was a drummer inside my chest and he just didn't know how to keep a beat. Um, Like it was really obvious that something wasn't right. And I guess as a lot of blokes do, you ignore those things when uh, perhaps you're that age and you think you're invincible. So I kind of just went on for probably a year or maybe more uh, with this irregular heartbeat, just thinking, ah, everyone must deal with this and we'll we'll just get through it. And eventually I had to have um, my gallbladder taken out for something completely different. And that was the first time a theatre nurse after the um, surgery for that was like, were you aware that your heart's out of rhythm? And and that was the first day that opened a big can of worms that led um, led on to quite quite a journey. Tell me about when you get told that by a medical professional. I mean, I'm sure you knew in your in your heart of hearts that there was um, something not quite right, but having an actual medical professional tell you, hey, you've got an irregular heartbeat and we need to look further into this. How does that hit you? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty full on. Um, you're right. I mean, obviously, I was aware that something wasn't feeling right, but to have someone in authority, I guess, say, you know, this, this is actually a problem and you need to go see your GP right now, like make an appointment for this afternoon. You need to start blood thinning medication immediately. Alarm bells start ring and, um, you know, you get on your phone to your folks. And I guess for me, I do have a bit of a back story and a bit of a family history of heart conditions. So you immediately turn to all those stories you've heard growing up and think, oh, okay, is this is this my round now? Is this what's going to happen? And yeah, it's, it's pretty full on, but... Um, yeah, I guess at that point you just do what you're told and, and off you go and, and start the start all the tests. How much does this change your life at this point? Are you still working full time? Are you still leading an active social life or is a lot of your life at this point, I mean, we're t- it's 2013 on my timeline here, at this point or is it just all hands on deck, I've got to figure out what's wrong with my heart? No, at this point it wasn't overly serious in that a lot of people have an irregular heartbeat and it can be managed um, quite well normally with medication. So for me at this point, it was a concern because if it's unmedicated, it can be quite a risk of stroke and other things like that. So it was important I got on to the right medication early and ideally that course of medication would have corrected it. So I started probably a year's worth of different medications to try and sort out this um, atrial fibrillation that I was diagnosed with. And it didn't really affect my lifestyle at that point. I was still working full time. I was still going out, um, still doing all the normal things I would, but I had introduced this regime of medication that I'd be taking. And and that was really the only change at that point. And 
I guess I was lucky enough for probably about a six month period, my heart went back into normal rhythm and, and everything was looking good. It was smooth sailing. I I went overseas with my two brothers. I was in the US and I remember just going to bed one night and I just felt it. I was like, oh, it's gone again. And I could just feel inside my chest that my heart was out of rhythm. And that was probably the biggest panic in that whole time was because I was on the other side of the world. And they always say how dangerous it is when you flick back out of rhythm that, you know, you need to get onto medication and see a doctor. And I was two days from coming back to Melbourne. So I was full stress mode then. But um, overall in that period, other than the medication, everything was still relatively normal in my world, which was which was fine. But at this point, you don't have a formal diagnosis at this point, do you? You've just been told you've got an irregular heartbeat. There's no, they haven't pinpointed it to something at this point, have they? That's right. I mean, they've diagnosed me in essence, as having atrial fibrillation or AF, um, which is just an irregular heartbeat. So at this point, that's all I was under the assumption that I had and everything we were working towards was to correct that. I had no idea at this point of any underlying or further issues beyond that. So you you leave the US and you come back to Melbourne, yep. straight to your doctor, I imagine. Yep. What happens there? Uh, yeah, so I'm back out of rhythm and he's like, all right, we need to try something a bit more aggressive. Obviously, the medication's not working or not working well enough for a long-term solution. So I went in and had a um, basically an electric shock. Think the whole TV, doctor yells clear and everyone stands back kind of scenario. Um, so I had a controlled electric shock to shock my heart back into normal rhythm. What's that feel like? Uh, well, I wasn't awake for it, uh, thankfully. I'm sure it'd be pretty intense if you're awake. But, um, yeah, they knock you out for a couple of minutes and, and do the procedure. And, and that worked perfectly fine for 12 hours. And then I was back out of rhythm again. So we'd class that as unsuccessful for a 12-hour solution. Um, so from here, we had to start looking at some more aggressive options. And it was decided that I needed to have what was called an ablation um, which is basically where they go in through a, a catheter, uh, normally through the groin, and feed a line up into the heart. And basically the whole thing with atrial fibrillation is that your brain is sending electrical messages to the heart to tell it to beat. But for whatever reason, my wiring's all crossed and it's receiving messages at the wrong time, causing it to, to beat irregularly. So the point of this um, ablation procedure is essentially they burn or freeze, depending on the method, a grid pattern across the surface of the heart um, and that forms scar tissue and, and basically is putting up like a barrier to these electrical signals. And the theory is that once the scar tissue forms, that the correct electrical pulse would, would naturally find its way to the heart and and all those irregular pulses would be blocked by by that framework. So that's what I was booked in to have next and got uh, got around to having that. And as a lot of things through my medical history, it didn't exactly go to plan. I um, went in for that operation and, yeah, basically woke up from that and was told that they had to abort the procedure halfway through as they found a blood clot inside my heart in what's known the left atrial appendage. So a small sort of appendage of the heart on the left side that um, – that, yeah, a clot had formed in there. So too dangerous for them to proceed. So they had to abort that and we had to sit back and look at, all right, what are our next options to try and do this procedure? 
How does that hit you? Because I imagine you go into something like that and you're like, when I wake up, my heart's going to be fixed and I can get on with this and put all of this behind me. And then you wake up and they say, hey, not only could we not fix the problem we knew, we found another problem. Yeah, look, it's a terrible thing, to be honest, to wake up. Um, Funnily enough, it's not the first time I've had that experience, but that's another story for another day. I had some spinal surgery as a child and had the exact same experience where I woke up to find out a few days later it it actually they hadn't done the job and we need to go back in again. So to cop it twice in your life is not ideal, but I mean, it's disappointment personified. It's, you know, you you go in prepared and and come out knowing that that it didn't work. I guess for this procedure, it's not all that invasive. Um, it's a small puncture wound in the groin and the recovery is very quick. Um, so it's not like it's a major surgery that, that you have to recover from, but obviously it's a hurdle and it just means another challenge moving forward. And at that point, I didn't know what those challenges were, but, um, but yeah, they turned out to become pretty intense pretty quickly. Okay. So they found this new problem. What happens next? So it was decided um, with my cardiologist and surgeon that the safest way for them to get in and do this ablation procedure was to have a full open heart bypass surgery. So we're going all in at this time. Full stenotomy, yeah, there's, there's no holding back. That's really the safest way given that my heart was so erratic. Any other sort of keyhole procedures uh, were just too risky with the way my heart was operating. So, yeah, this uh, brings us to around May 2017 where I was booked in to have full open heart surgery where they'd remove this clot that they found by actually cutting off and removing the left atrial appendage altogether um, and also completing the cryomaze procedure where they, they freeze that pattern over the heart at the same time. So, so that was big news. That was... Um, it was hard to handle when you find out, okay, this is, it doesn't get much more serious than heart bypass surgery, you know, spinal surgery, brain surgery, heart surgery. I mean, we're, we're right at the top shelf now. So at this point, you're having the surgery. Please tell me it goes all right. Uh, I wish it did, but no, um, it didn't really go to plan. Um, I mean, the surgery itself went, went perfectly to plan. I had the full open heart surgery and they did everything that they wanted to do. Uh, the problem was that it basically didn't fix the problem. My heart didn't settle down. Um, in fact, it got worse post-surgery in the week in recovery post the heart surgery. I think my resting heart rate was up around 180. Wow. Um, so... I was essentially running a marathon, lying in bed all day. Uh, it was absolutely exhausting. They couldn't get the rhythm right. It was all over the place. Um, and at this point, I was essentially in f- sort of full-blown heart failure. Um, I started gaining a lot of fluid. Um, so I had fluid intake all over my body and it was most prominent in my lungs to begin with. So I went through weeks and weeks of having drains um, in in my lungs to, to drain those. And it got to a point where my entire body was that overloaded with fluid that you could press anywhere on my body, my legs, the back of my hand, and you'd have a fingerprint in there for a few minutes until the fluid filled back up again. I was I was like the Michelin man, but I was full of my own fluid. It was, it was really, really hard time. And yeah, my body just, just really struggled through that period. Um, I probably, I spent two to three months in the hospital 
um, trying to recover from this surgery and and I did okay but I never really recovered fully um, and it was basically decided that I was was in heart failure and and I was told that you can live with heart failure and and this is something you're needing to prepare for and and yeah I was basically eventually sent to rehab and eventually sent home with a book on how to live with heart failure and obviously I'd have future checkups and that sort of thing and and yeah it was it was a pretty pretty grim time like that doesn't sound like again I'm not a doctor but that doesn't sound like a solution to me was that again hard to hear like what do you mean I can you're sending me home with a with a how-to book on how to live with heart failure yeah I mean personally I was stoked that I was getting out of that place because after 90 days in hospital you you just want to get out but um yeah upon reflection i i shouldn't have really been going anywhere i still didn't really have a clear diagnosis of what was wrong with my heart other than i was in heart failure and and i was really unwell um i wasn't eating right and by this point i dropped about a third of my body weight i was at my lowest, once I was eventually drained of all my fluid overload, I weighed 42 kilos, which, uh, yeah, is not ideal for someone who normally weighs closer to 70. So I was wheelchair bound, just doing the most simple things, going to the toilet, having a shower, absolutely exhausting. Um, I couldn't even dry myself after having a shower. I had no energy um, and, yeah, was was really, really struggling. So, after I finished rehab, I went home. I was home for a fortnight and the fluid overload was was back in full force again and went and saw the GP and was like, this is not going right. And uh, he completely agreed and we went and got um, a few echocardiograms and other tests done to check uh, where my heart was at and what was going on. And, and that was showed that I was completely overloaded with fluid again to the point that I needed to be hospitalized that day. So after being in hospital for three months and going home for two weeks, which I thought was great and going to be the end of that, um, I was back to hospital and back to, yeah, some more serious looking into what was going on. And this time around, I went to a different hospital, um, one closer to home. And the first afternoon that I got in there, the cardiologist came in to see me and my dad. And the first thing he asked was, so what what do you have? What have you died? What have you been diagnosed with? And I kind of looked at my dad and we looked at each other and we basically couldn't answer. We didn't know to this point. We didn't have a clear diagnosis and uh, to credit to this cardiologist, he really made it his goal. All right, well, I'm going to do everything I can and we're going to get you a diagnosis and, and get this really looked into and, and hopefully get you fixed. And, I spent two weeks in this new hospital and did a whole range of new tests and, yeah, I was eventually diagnosed with restrictive cardiomyopathy and it's funny because my grandfather had cardiomyopathy and, and unfortunately passed away from it, um, so too my uncle. Um, so it's not really something in my family you ever want to get diagnosed with because it's not a nice thing to have. But in my case, it was actually a really good thing to hear because finally we had at least something, we had a diagnosis and and we could start, you know, putting our energy and time into, all right, well, what do we need to do to to correct this? And 
the short answer was we ne- I needed a heart transplant and that's when that discussion started happening. Did they give you an idea or of how long you might be waiting for a new heart? I know there's also things like you said waiting for the phone to ring like tell me tell me how it is waiting for that call. Uh yeah, it's it's a crazy time. Um obviously that's the first question everyone asks when they're talking transplant and wanting to be or needing to be listed is all right, how long is it going to take and the guys at the Alfred were confident that hopefully they'd have something come up inside two or three months and so that was my goal was to essentially last that long um it ended up being eight months for me um and in that time I essentially I wasn't working obviously through all of this hospital period but my full-time job became staying well enough so when that phone call did ring I was ready to go and I was at the Alfred four days a week doing different appointments and doing essentially rehab, prehab, so to say, before, um, just doing a simple gym program so that I could be as strong as I could be. And and that was my sole goal. Um, well, I couldn't leave Melbourne uh, more than an hour away in case the phone did ring. So I guess that's pretty hard. I got one exception one weekend. They let me go away. I had a little weekend away down in Lakes Entrance just to get out of town. I hadn't been out of the inner suburbs for a long time and I just wanted some fresh air outside of the city and they made an exception and I guess if the phone call rang, they just needed to know they needed to build in some extra time into when they finally decided to call me if that's when it was going to be. But, yeah, it's the kind of experience where you know where your phone is all the time, you know how much charge you have left in your phone all the time, you know where the charger is if it's going low and, um, you know, if you're heading out of range for whatever reason, you know, car park or I don't know, at the cinema or something like that, and your phone might be off or on silent that you don't turn it off or you don't put it on silent, you make sure it's on. And if it disrupts the cinema, so be it. I'm going to make sure I get that call. So you become, I don't know, very early on, you kind of look at your phone all the time. But as time goes on, I guess you forget about it a little bit, but it's, it's always there in the back of your mind. And every time the phone rings with a private number, you're like, well, is this it? Um, and sometimes it's telemarketing and one time it's not. And uh, pretty amazing when it is that one time. Tell me about when that call finally comes, mate. Yeah, it was completely out of the blue and completely unexpected. I had my sister and brother-in-law and my nephew over who was one at the time and We'd had a really nice dinner. I cooked them dinner and dessert and uh, we were mucking around. Um, Me and my brother-in-law were actually reciting some songs from Aladdin for my nephew and, um, yeah, just having a good old laugh. And then the phone rang and I took the call and I wish now I had it recorded, but I don't. But um, as far as I recall, it was uh, this is so-and-so from the Alfred um, just calling to let you know that we found a – a heart for you um and i don't even know what i said something along the lines of that's amazing um and yeah you it's just surreal like you don't know what to do obviously you're thinking all right i've got to let everyone know and i've got to get down there and this was about 7 30 p.m and um they said i needed to come down to the alfred by about nine o'clock so i had about an hour and a half and i only live 15 minutes down the road so 
had a good amount of time to have a shower and get my bag organized and call my folks. My mum my and stepdad were actually in Bali at the time. They'd taken a chance on on getting a little getaway. Um, and of course, the minute they leave, the phone rings. It's always the way. Um, so I had to call them and let them know, you, know, you might have to get on a plane and come back tomorrow. But yeah, called all the family and let everyone know. And then uh, me and my sister headed down to the Alfred. People find it weird. I drove myself down to the hospital. I don't know why. Um, but yeah, I just thought, no, you don't need to drive me. I'll, I'll drive myself there. And um, yeah, walked into the emergency and rocked up to the window and said, hi, I'm James Shepherd, and I'm here for a heart transplant, which is something crazy. And they all look up from the desk and like, oh, you're James. Oh, and, um, and away we go. We start prepping for, for the surgery. You go for the surgery. Tell me about waking up after it. Yeah, I woke up in intensive care. I think it was day two. Um, I'm not completely – it was either day two or day three that I eventually woke up. It's not a pleasurable experience waking up from a major surgery like that. Um, And I feel for anyone through this COVID time who's had to go onto a ventilator because that's the experience that I woke up to and – it's quite uncomfortable, but once that's all out um, and I'm up and awake and breathing, um, it's amazing because you know you're, you're alive. And I guess that's the feeling that I had. I had my parents visit and it was just incredible. And a lot of people ask me, well, how did it feel? You know, you've got a new heart inside you. And honestly, the feeling for me was I felt nothing. And I'll explain that. So for so long, like five years or so, I've had this irregular heartbeat and this heart that didn't work properly and I could physically feel that. And I'd forgotten that it's normal to not know your heart's in there. It's normal to not even know that it's working. And for so long, I'd had that physical feeling that it was beating and struggling and beating out of rhythm that to wake up and it's just silent. There's nothing happening in my chest. It's there, it's working, but I can't feel it. That's how it felt and that was incredible. It's it's like this is how it's meant to be. I, it's in there and it's just working. That's phenomenal. That must have been an amazing feeling to just be like, this is this is how people feel. This is how it's supposed to be. Yeah. Now you've got to move on to your rehab at this point and the things you've achieved since having this transplant in 2017 is nothing short of phenomenal. So tell us about setting yourself a goal. Post-rehab, uh, post-transplant at the Alfred, uh, you sign up to a three-month pretty intensive rehab course. And essentially, it's like doing PT three times a week. I went through my rehab and really excelled at that. I got to the point, I guess at the beginning, I started my rehab. I was back in the gym on an exercise bike on day 11 after my surgery. So there's no mucking around with getting back on my feet and, and getting into it. And I was coming to the end or close to the end of my three months of rehab and the head of physio at the Alfred there said, now you need to keep this up. You need to find something to maintain your health and fitness. And it's really important that you find something that you can commit to. Um, you know, you might not like going to the gym. You might want to do something else, but whatever it is, you need to find something that you can really commit to. The heart is a muscle like any other muscle and it it needs to be worked out. It needs to be exercised. And so I had to, you know, have a sit back and think about it and 
decided that, well, I got some family, I got some mates that like to cycle and it's always been something I hadn't really gotten into, maybe because thinking about it now, my heart never really allowed me to exercise properly. But I thought, you know what, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give cycling a go. If it's just riding to work, that would be a great thing. Um, so yeah, I, I left rehab and and bought a bike and said, all right, this is this is my goal. I'm going to make cycling a thing in my life. And it's not too long after that. I mean, it's May 2018, you get the new hard. By October, you're competing in events. Yeah. So my first uh, goal was to compete or not compete, but I guess participate in the around the bay bike ride. And at this point, what, I was five months post-transplant and I just signed up for the, the shortest distance, which was 20 kilometres, which for me at the time felt like it was a massive amount. Um, and that was an incredible morning. Uh, I rode the 20 kilometres. Um, I hadn't ridden that far prior to that um, since having the transplant. So that was a real challenge. And we flew through in the end. I was like, oh, I could have done double that. That felt amazing. So that uh, that was a great start. And, and then I sort of thought, well, what can I do to give back to to the organ donation community and and I guess give back to the gift that I've received and and I sort of thought that I would come up with this initiative and I'd base it around cycling and that sort of grew the idea of what I called the heart trail and we started planning a 200 kilometer bike ride to raise awareness for organ donation and yeah, that was sort of my next goal, um, which I set myself for January in the in the year following. James, it's an absolutely phenomenal story that you've just uh, you've just told us there. I've just got two more things I want to ask you. The first one: What would you say to the donor's family who uh, the reason you got a new heart? It's a really tough question to answer. Obviously, thank you, but thank you is not even enough. I guess I would just want them to know how happy and how well I'm doing and and hope that they are proud of the decision that they made and and can see what an incredible outcome it's become and and what an incredible gift it was and and how grateful I am now and and forever will be you know I'm living a life that I could have only dreamed of I'm happy healthy and that's all because of their gift and thank you, but so much more than that. My final question, what would you say to someone who wasn't sure about becoming an organ donor or was contemplating it or just in two minds? I would say that it's the positive outcome stories that they really should focus on and seeing what a gift like that can achieve. The same night I got my heart transplant. A girl got a double lung transplant two hours before me and we did rehab together and she's living amazingly right now as well. And it's stories like that, that this is what you can do by being an organ donor, leaving behind a legacy that could change up to nine people's lives. It's just incredible. And and the second chance that you give people that may have suffered their entire life and you give them that opportunity to to fulfill a life that's that's something incredible, you can't buy that opportunity. And I think that alone should should give people, you know, comfort in wanting to sign up as an organ donor, knowing that if it were ever to come to that, what an incredible legacy I can leave behind. James Shepard, thank you so much for telling your story today. No worries, thank you. 
What an amazing story. Only made possible because of one amazing person and their family who decided to become an organ donor. Australia needs more heroes like this. So if you were touched by James's story, I want you to do two things. Go to donatelife.gov.au and sign up to become an organ donor. And also talk to your family about your wishes. The third one, which is optional, but I'd still really appreciate it, is tell someone about this podcast. Share it on your social media, email it to a colleague, scream it from a rooftop. Let's get the message out there. If you did sign up after hearing this, or you've just got any questions or comments about the podcast, drop me a line, donatelifepodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. Next week, I'll be talking to Bonnie Power in what could be the toughest interview I ever do. Bonnie's son, Jack, was killed by a distracted driver. On what was the worst day of her life, Bonnie had to decide whether or not to donate his organs. She's an amazingly strong woman with a very important story to tell. I hope you'll join me, and I hope you make the decision to donate life.